Good evening, my name is John Hanna. On behalf of the church, can I welcome you tonight to this very special service. Not special because I'm preaching, but special because it's the first evening Bible teaching service since COVID. It's the first in our refurbished building, and it's the first in this series of Psalms. It's a real privilege to preach. It's a particular privilege I've been part of this church for 52 years, which is a fantastic privilege, and uh, this is the third incarnation of the building, Um, so it's really exciting to be standing up here enjoying it. I was thinking about first tonight, I was trying to remember the first time I preached here, I kind of hardly remember the days when we had no technology, but I want us all to go, well, for some of you this is a present situation, But I want us all to, those of us who are a little older, to go back to being at school. And I want to just ask you this question. What were or are, for some of you, your favorite subjects at school? (laughs) Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Because my next statement was, or for some of us, which subjects did you least dislike? And I also have in my notes, apologies if you absolutely hated school, but John has beat me to it. This is a list of subjects at a modern school. A few of us recognize some of them, but most of them didn't exist when I was at school. But when I was looking on the web, I came across this picture which just looked as if I had drawn it on our scratchy school blackboards. You older folks, you remember the scratchy school blackboards and the horrible noise the teacher made with the chalk when they drew over it? I see some very glazed faces because you've no idea what a blackboard is. But if I had written that list, there would have been a whole lot of subjects between physics and English. I could devour books, but plays or poetry were of no interest to me, and analysing their structure was such a frustrating and, to my mind, totally pointless exercise. And even today, if I'm in the car and I happen to press the button on the radio and it comes up with something like poetry, please, for those of you who don't do Radio 4, that's when listeners write in and ask for specific high-quality poems I just pressed the off switch as quickly as I put it came on. But to be fair, if it's not something really factual, I normally hit the off switch pretty quickly anyway. I'll admit to admiring poets and the cleverness of their work, but I always prepare prose. So preaching from the book of Psalms is not, wouldn't have been my first choice. I know for some of you it would be. This is a book of 150 poems. So that's quite a challenge. Psalms form such a large part of the Bible and is so different from some other parts of it, I felt we should have a brief introduction. And if I want a quick summary of a Bible book, I head to this website, to the Bible Project website. Paul Friend, our community previous community pastor introduced our Bible study group to it and I think it's absolutely fantastic. I'll get told later it's not, but I think it's brilliant. 
And I recommend it to you. That's just a personal recommendation. So let's try to watch the first part of it. The Book of Psalms, it's a collection of 150 ancient Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers that come from all different periods in Israel's history. Many of these poems are connected with King David, 73, actually, and he was known as a poet and a harp player. But there are many different authors behind these poems. There's the poems of Asaph, or from the sons of Korah, and some are from other worship leaders in the temple. Even Solomon and Moses have their own poems, and nearly one-third of these are anonymous. Now, many of these poems came to be used by the choirs that sang in Israel's temple, but the Book of Psalms is actually not a hymn book. At some point in the period after Israel's exile to Babylon, these ancient poems were gathered together and intentionally arranged into the book of Psalms before us. And it has a very unique design and message that you're not going to notice unless you read it from beginning to end. Now, to see how the book of Psalms is designed, it's actually most helpful to start at the end. The book concludes with five poems of praise to the God of Israel, and each one begins and ends with the word hallelujah, which is Hebrew for a command to tell a group of people to praise Yah, which is short for the divine name Yahweh. Now, that's a really nice five-part arrangement, and it looks like someone's giving us a conclusion here to the book. So it invites the question, does the book have any other signs of intentional design? If you pay attention to the headings of the poems, you'll notice that at five places, your Bible translators have the heading book one, book two, book three, four, and five at various points, and that these divide the book into five large sections. Now, the reason for this is that the final poem in each of those sections have a very similar ending that looks like an editorial edition. It reads something like, May the Lord, the God of Israel, be blessed forever and ever. Amen and amen. So the book has a conclusion. It has an internal organization into five main parts. And so the natural place to go from here is now the beginning to look for an introduction. And what do we find? Psalms 1 and 2, which stand outside of book 1 because most of the poems in book 1 are linked to David, except Psalms 1 and 2, which are anonymous. Psalm 1 celebrates how blessed the person is who meditates on the Torah, prayerfully reading it day and night and then obeying it. Now, the word Torah simply means teaching, and more specifically, it came to refer to the five books of Moses that begin the Old Testament. And here, actually, the word seems to be used with both meanings in mind which explains why it has five main parts. The book of Psalms is being offered as a new Torah that will teach God's people the lifelong practice of prayer as they strive to obey God's commands given in the first Torah. Psalm 2 is a poetic reflection on God's promise to King David from 2 Samuel chapter 7, that one day a messianic king would come and establish God's kingdom over the world, defeat evil and rebellion among the nations. Now Psalm 2 concludes by saying that all those who take refuge in in the Messianic King will be blessed, precisely the word used to open Psalm 1. And so together, these two poems tell us that the book of Psalms is designed to be the prayer book of God's people as they strive to be faithful to the commands of the Torah as they hope and wait for the future Messianic Kingdom. Now, with these two themes introduced, we can start to see how the smaller books have been designed as well around these two ideas. So, for example, book one has right at the center a collection of poems, Psalms 15 through 24, that opens and closes with a call to covenant faithfulness. 
And then, Psalm 16 to 18, we find a depiction of David as a model of this kind of faithfulness. So he calls out to God to deliver him, and God elevates him as king. Now, in the corresponding set of poems, Psalms 20 to 23, the David of the past has become an image of the messianic king of the future, who will also call out to God, he will be delivered, and then given a kingdom over the nations. And then right at the center of this collection is a poem, Psalm 19, dedicated to praising God for the Torah. So here we go. The two themes from Psalms 1 and 2 are bound together tightly here. And you thought I spoke fast. I thought it would be useful just to pick a couple of the slides and to just remind us of the summary. So massive, a lot of information. Why don't you look at it again when you go home? So some Psalms, as we know, are very short. Some, like 119, are very long. David's credited, as we see with most of them, but that's still less than half, which I was surprised to realize. And also it reminds us that Psalms, although many of them were sung, it's still a hymn book in our modern sense. But as we've just seen, the Psalms we're considering in this series are part of book one. And Psalms one and two are shown as anonymous and outside it, and yet that fits with my personal reading of the Psalms. They have special content and significance, and all the Psalms are amazing, but they are particularly different from the rest of this group. And the Psalms in book one are mainly about David. And this slide shows the structure that was given to us. And the Psalm we're going to look at tonight fits into this section entitled, the future, if you can read it, The Future King's Deliverance and Kingdom Over the Nations. In future weeks, we'll be looking at Psalms 22, 23, and 24. If you're really observant and not about to fall asleep, you will see that the sequence that is used here is not quite the same as the sequence that we've chosen to use. We're looking at 21 to 24, and the sequence that this commentator suggests is 20 to 23. Now, why do I highlight that? Well, partly just to check you, you're actually watching the screen. But also because I want to point out the very important issue that the Bible is inspired, but commentaries about it and preachers and Bible scholars are not inspired. They tell us and say many helpful things, but some people say if you've got two commentaries, you will have at least five opinions. And sometimes that's true, so it's important we don't get distracted. Yes, I know we've had an extended Um, introduction already. It's not because I suddenly realized when Ian sat down I had much longer than I expected to have. Don't worry, we're not going to get carried away. But it's because there are some things I'd like to share with you for a moment. I want to give you something not written by a Bible commentary, but more of a layman's view. Well, that's if you call a professor of medieval and Renaissance English at Cambridge University a layman. But if you read his book, that's what he says. He doesn't use the word layman um, because C.S. Lewis doesn't normally use common words. Um, But the reality is that he writes this little book He says specifically, not as a Bible scholar. 
And he says the Psalms are poems, and poems intended to be sung, not doctrinal treatises, nor even sermons. They must be read as poems if they are to be understood. Otherwise, we shall miss what is in them and think we see what is not. He says they have to be read as lyrics with all the licenses and all the formalities, all the hyperboles, the emotional rather than logical connections which are proper to lyric poetry. I was a bit disappointed by that, but I think he's clearly absolutely right. He says that they're difficult to translate, but the chief formal characteristic in all poem poetic structures Unless maybe at school they don't even do poems nowadays and maybe you don't ever do the structure of a poem. I really don't know. I'm too much out of touch. But there is a structure to poetry. There's a structure to English poetry. There's a structure to Hebrew poetry, which is actually quite different from English poetry. But the chief formal characteristic of these poems, says Lewis, is fortunately one that survives in translation and scholars call it parallelism which he says is the practice of saying the same thing twice in different words and he quotes uh, verse 4 of psalm 2 where he says the one enthroned in heaven laughs and the lord scoffs at them as a parallelism and he goes on to say if we have any taste for poetry we shall enjoy this feature of the psalms even those Christians who cannot enjoy it will respect it. Our Lord, soaked in the poetic tradition of his country, delighted to use it. I wish I'd read these words a long time before I did. And the other thing that I have to bow to is his statement that I've just read even those Christians, in other words, people like me and some of you, I think, who don't automatically warm to poetry or find it straightforward or easy, he says we will respect it. That's a challenge and an encouragement. And I find this because I don't fall in, as you've already picked up at least 20 minutes ago, I don't fall into the don't, I fall into the don't find it easy to enjoy category. I think his suggestion that in Jesus' ministry, he often uses parallelism as something. He gives one verse I've quoted there, but that's an interesting subject, but it's not for tonight. Okay, here's the text of Psalm 21 in the modern format that Bible translations use, laying it out as poetry. Yes, I know it's hard to read. I know you should never put up slides like that. But I'd simply wanted to get it on one screen. But if you're not naturally a poetry lover, how do you get your head around that? I'm glad that Ian was honest about the fact that when you read it, it's great, but there are bits that are not so easy. Well, let me try to answer my own question by sharing my usual approach to Psalms. Irene and I use, and this is an unashamed plug, the issues encounter with God. If you don't use Bible reading, it's a wonderful scheme. We use it for our daily Bible readings. We do it together because we're retired and you can do such things. 
But every Sunday, it's a psalm, which I often do on my own because Sunday's a busy day. So I read through the NIV. I quickly flick over to the message to try and get my head around it a bit easier. Then I go back to the NIV and read it again. And then I finally read the comments in the SU notes. Now, that's not a recommended way of doing things. That's just me being really honest and saying, if like me, you, you look forward to Sundays, but you don't look forward to the fact that the Bible reading is a psalm, then that's the way I find it helpful. Of course, the other absolutely crucial thing to do is that we need to pray for the Holy Spirit's guidance as we try to read it. That's the first step, and that's a step I always use too. The other thing I thoroughly recommend is careful reading and rereading of the passage. And since Psalms are laid out as poetry, and I know you'll probably not see this when I see the screen there, there are things you can see. For example, if you look up there, you can just see I'm writing it. Sorry, that's the wrong color. It should be red. You've got strength, Lord, up there. You'll just have to trust me if you haven't got the Bible in front of you. You've got strength, Lord, down there. And if you read these verses down here, which should, of course, have been blue, but if you read these verses down here and you read these verses here carefully, you'll actually find that there's quite a link between them. And in here, in this central verse here of the psalm, you'll find that it's a very interesting pivot. And so if we take these verses and move them, I don't expect you to read it, you'll see that we get some sort of indenting. Now this is a colour version. Again, you'll probably find it easier to have your Bible in front of you. But what we have here is we've put the colours at top here. We've got reds, um, which doesn't work too well if you show it green. But this is the one at the top. And this one at the bottom are talking about the Lord's strength. The Lord's strength. And if you also look at this section here, my commentary suggests that it's to do with God's gifts to his king and the expectations of the king. And if you read the details, you will find that that's the case. And then we have this verse in the middle, verse 7 which is actually the hinge point or the pivot point in the psalm. Now, I didn't get this myself. I obviously read a commentary. And Bible scholars, and I know there are some here who really understand this, Bible scholars like to refer to this as as a kind of parallelism. It's got a fancy word called chiasm or chiasm. Is it chiasm? It's chiasm. It's for the Greek letter chi. And so what they try to do here is to say that A and A prime, because I'm an engineer, and B and B prime are related, and we've got C in the middle here. And so this psalm is structured in a way in terms of its ideas. A lot of the words apply so that you can think about it in this way. Do you need to think about it in this way to understand it? Absolutely not. So why am I showing you it? Because I think if you do look at it like this, 
it's, I guess, like the English, I hated school. If you actually did look at the poem the teacher took you through, you were able to see that actually there was a lot of these things in there. Did it enhance my reading of the poetry at school? Well, it didn't make me love it. But we're going to leave that stuff now. We're just simply going to look at the Word of God. We haven't read it as a separate thing tonight, separate passage, because I want us to go through the details. So the first heading is the king's joy in the Lord's strength, which is in verse 1. Now, who is this king is the immediate question that comes to our mind. We presume it's David himself, even though he seems to be writing in the third person. Now, Psalm 21 is actually closely related to Psalm 20 in its structure and comments. Many commentators suggest that Psalm 20, if you read it when you go home, and that is your homework, we have really early services now, so you've got the whole evening with nothing else to do but to read Psalm 20, 21, and then prepare for two weeks' time, we'll be looking at Psalm 22. And when you read it yourself, you'll find it's much easier than the difficult thing I'm making it to be. Psalm 20 is very related to Psalm 21 because it's a prayer for help in battle. And as we work through Psalm 21, you'll realize that this is a prayer of thanksgiving for victory. So the two of them are a pair of kingly psalms. As soon as I said I was speaking in Psalm 21, I was so impressed that Alistair's immediate response was kingly psalms. And I thought, I wish I really knew my Bible as well as that. But if you go back to Psalm 20, let me just share a little story with you. In the late 1950s, so that's not quite a hundred years ago, but getting on for it, my dad ran a scripture knowledge class. Yes, that's what he called it. A scripture knowledge class in the local community centre in our isolated miners' housing scheme. And well over a hundred children came every week to learn and repeat Bible verses. No, no. Not the Bible verses that you learned in Sunday school. Verses from all over the Bible. Like verse 7 in Psalm 20. Because I could repeat that with another 120 children who got marks for repeating it every Wednesday evening. So that was it. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now very few of the children had any church connection. And I often wondered what my schoolmates made of such texts. Because some of you young folks will be surprised to realize that there weren't chariots and horses in the 1950s. There were actually quite a lot of cars. They were a bit different from modern cars. But chariots and horses? I still wonder what some of these folks, if any of them remember that. I never asked Dad why he chose these verses. But I think I understand. Because Dad wanted them not to come up with some pat verses, but to realize that a relationship with God affects the whole of your life. That it's God is interested in all of your life. It's not that you say Romans 10 and 9, they learned that too. And that's the end of it. It's that God cares about us and God cares about his world and he's interested in it and involved in it. And when they came to the class, 
They knew from dad's enthusiasm and his passion for the Bible and his author that that really mattered to him. And as we look at this, let's remember that the king rejoices in your strength, Lord, and how great is his joy in the victories you give. That's a big disconnect from our society. That's not the way we see it. In the 1950s, we had... um, the time Dad was running this club, we had a queen who was very steeped in the Bible, and as we've seen throughout her history, remains so, and there was a little bit more connection. But in our society, that doesn't, we don't relate to that sort of thing. But this is a psalm that was written at the time for the people of that time. And lots of it is very relevant to us. And verse 20 of chapter 7, you didn't give me Psalm 20, but verse 20 of chapter 7 is worth learning and remembering. It stood me in good stead. Some trust in, and you could, we could have a whole sermon on it. Some trust in all sorts of things. All our friends trust in all sorts of things. But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And as the king trusts in God, he gives them gifts and he says... You have granted him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. That could go back to Psalm um, 20 when he was praying for victory. We then have a set of verses here where, again, we have lots of things you can see. You can see here that God greets the king. God grants the king. You can see here that there are rich blessings And here there are unending blessings. You can see here that there's a crown of gold placed on his head. And here he's bestowed in splendor and majesty. And in the center here, there's a comment about life. Now, if you read the Bible, we don't actually need the commentary for this. If you actually read the Bible and look at it, read it carefully, even... A Philistine like me can see these things. These are beautiful and lovely things that are planned there. And here it's structured, and I'll go over it again. So in verses 3a and 6b, we have, You came to greet him and made him glad with the joy of your presence. Parallels there. In verse 3b, you have rich blessings And in verse 6a, surely you have granted him unending blessings. And you've placed a crown of pure gold on his head, verse 3c. And in verse 5, through the victories you give, his glory is great. You have bestowed on him splendor and majesty. And in the center here, he asked you for life and you gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. So no, these patterns have not been worked out by a teacher who had to deal with a class of bored students. They are in the passage. They're really quite clear. And they might not help us to understand all the detail of the psalm because lots of the things here are kind of foreign to our thinking, to our society today. But the reality is that they are a beautiful creation. And... That is something which we've been learning about. We learned this morning about God's creation. And if you read more of C.S. Lewis, 
and I was really rebuked by this, you'll find that God's use of poetry is another example of his creative genius. And that he doesn't just build it, he, he doesn't just build the world as a mechanical engineer like me would. Because did you notice in Alistair's sermon this morning, did you notice that not only did he make the trees good to eat, he made them beautiful to look at. That's what he's done here. Here is this beautiful poem, and it's so crafted that it reveals us things. It, it pictures, it create, poetry creates a picture. So we have the picture of God coming to greet his king. We, he blesses him. He places a pl- crown of gold on his head. You, he asks for life, and you give him it forever. And then we back out with the repetition of glory of blessings and of joy. Isn't that beautiful? Aren't the Psalms wonderful? And what's the king's response? The key in verse 7 says, For the king trusts in the Lord, through him the unfailing love of the Most High. Through the unfailing love of the Most High, he will not be shaken. This links me back to my verse from Psalm 20, where the people were actually, the people were, um, thinking about God and their trust in God. So in Psalm 20 and verse 7, the people trusted in God. Here the king is placing his trust in God and he receives the unfailing love, which is a special Hebrew word, said of the Lord Most High, say we will not be shaken. So the king's response to the pressure he faces is exactly what ours should be. As we place our trust in the Lord, we are assured of his unfailing love and so will not be shaken. So if you, want to, if you don't find it easy to remember anything of the structure of Psalm 21 after tonight, just go to verse 7. Okay? Go to verse 7 and see the king trusting in the Lord, trusting in the unfailing love of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Now, the people's expectations of the king, I guess probably this is some of the bits, Ian, that you and I would find difficult with because it says your hand will lay hold on your enemies, your right hand will seize your foes. When you appear for battle, you will burn them up as in a blazing furnace. Yes, this is one of the bits many of us find difficult about the Psalms. It sounds a bit brutal, and it is a bit brutal. But it's easy for us to say that, but we forget that throughout history, wars were the norm. Not uncommon at all. They weren't the exception. And kings and their kingdoms were typically under regular attack. And the people of Israel, God's chosen people, depended on God. And so this verse goes on to say, The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and his fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, their posterity from mankind. And yes, it's back to fairly violent reactions of the king again. But notice he's not relying on his strength or his military technology. That was back in Psalm 20, remember? Chariots and horses. Where we're seeing chariots and horses, modern equivalents, being exported to Ukraine, who are facing the 
possibility of them not existing anymore. That was what it was like for Israel. This was a situation where the countries around them amassed their weapons and attacked regularly. But the psalmist here and the king and the people are looking to God for rescue. And it says, though they plot evil against you and devise wicked schemes, they cannot succeed. Then you will make them turn their backs when you aim at them with drawn bow. So those who were fighting against the Israelites were trying to defeat and thwart God's purposes for his people. Is this relevant to us today? And if so, how? I think it is relevant. Because although we are not called to take up arms against our enemies, indeed we are called to love them, to pray for them and turn the other cheek, we need to remember that we are most definitely at war. And that our adversary is Satan. He is behind all the human opposition we and our brothers and sisters face. So it's very important to remember that Satan's evil plots and the wicked schemes he sponsors will not succeed. The victory is and will be the Lord's. And we need the Lord to provide victory for us. And in the last verse, the people rejoice in the Lord's strength. Be exalted in your strength, Lord. I will sing and praise your might. We all know there are countries in our world who have, at least once a year, a big parade through their capital cities of all their weapons, of all the magnificent technology they've invented to destroy our world. This psalm reminds us that God is in control. And it reminds us that the victory is God's and we should rejoice in His strength. It's God's strength. It's God's strength we pray. We praise, not our own strength, not our own abilities. So let's recap. Here's the psalm laid out. I know you can't read it. It's a poem of rejoicing which celebrates the victory of the king over his enemies. And probably, as I said, an answer in the prayer to Psalm 20. However, like many psalms, it anticipates the promised Messiah. Calvin says, These things we've read in the psalm, learned in the psalm, are no doubt true with respect to the kingdom of David. But what is here stated was only fully accomplished in Christ. As his, that's Christ's divine power, ought justly to strike terror into the wicked, so it is described as full of the sweetest consolation to us, which ought to inspire us with joy and incite us to celebrate it with songs of praise and thanksgiving. And recapping, we saw this already. So what we have here is these earlier psalms were to do with David's kingdom particularly, But this psalm that we've looked at here and the psalms we're going to look at in the next sessions are really focusing primarily and fully fulfilled in the future king, the king of kings and lord of lords, great David's greater son. And so reading about God's victory there is referring, and the battle is obviously referring to the battle Jesus won in Calvary, and to the final victory which will be seen when Christ comes back, as we thought about this morning. And that 
is something you'll hear more about in two weeks' time when we have a proper Bible scholar, Ivor Martin, coming to teach us from Psalm 22 where the relationship with the future king is so very clear. I hope I've not given you the impression that you need Bible commentaries and a lot of time and effort to fully benefit from reading a psalm. But I'm going to take a moment to do a wee challenge. How many apps do you have? This is for people my age or younger, I guess. Some folk are excused from not having modern technology if you don't really want it. But if you've got a phone, how much do you pay for the music on your phone? How many apps do you have? How much time do you spend playing games? Do you know that for very little money, you could get some brilliant Bible commentaries? You could have them all, a touch of a button on your phone. And if you want uh, advice, I have no commission, speak to me. Um, Not afterwards, because there's a caravan tonight. But um, at some time in the future, and it will run on any computer you have, any tablet you have, and it will enable you to access commentaries at the push of a button. Do you need them to benefit from Psalms or anywhere in the Bible? No, you don't. But I kind of feel, if all these things are available to us, should we not use them? If we find them helpful, should we not get the benefit of all the information? Should we not think that investing in a good Bible library is actually worthwhile? And I'm sure that Alistair can point you to other ones which are probably way better than the ones I have. But honestly, it might not be a bad thing to do. But you don't need them. My dad believed he never used a commentary. He believed that the best way to understand the Bible was to pray so much that God would reveal it to you. And he had such a deep love for the Bible and its author that he read it regularly and prayed constantly. And so he knew the Psalms so well he could give out these verses to the children in the children's club. He'd have preached tonight without any reference to most of the stuff I've said. And I'm not sure if he'd be really disappointed like you are. But his face would have been radiant and tear-stained as he extolled the beauty of the King of Kings and the glories of his future victory. So why have I kept mentioning Dad tonight? Am I just being nostalgic? No, because he always reminds me, every time I think about him, the reason we read the Bible is to get to know its author and to have a relationship with him that will transform our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words. I'm sorry that I haven't done it justice tonight. Talk too much about my own problems. But Lord, I pray that you help all of us to really focus on the revelation that you give us in your word. And we pray that that revelation will transform our lives through bringing us into a deeper daily walk with you. And that as we read your word and as we read Psalms for those of us who don't find it so easy... Your spirit will take these words and use them to change our lives. And as we've talked about our sad world tonight, we pray for so many countries where there is still so much fighting, where there is so much heartbreak and suffering as in Turkey, where people in Ukraine don't know what will happen to them tomorrow, where people are kidnapped and murdered because they're Christians. And Lord, we remind you that this world needs you to intervene. And we pray, Lord that you will come quickly, Lord Jesus.
we ask in your name amen